2: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog ArsCast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. What a week it's been from an Arsenal perspective. A win in the North London Derby. Harry Kane fell over. Then he got back up again. Then he slid in. Then he gave an assist to Bukayo Osaka. Arsenal won the Derby 3-1. The momentum has changed. It looks like we could potentially be a football team again, which is nice. On top of that, the Arsenal women beat Manchester City 5-0 on Sunday. Then thrashed Spurs 5-1 to reach the semifinals. Of the FA Cup. So it has been a good week to be a Gooner. And let's hope that we get plenty more of those between now and May. Because, man, isn't it just so much better when stuff like this happens? When we, you know, play well, don't lose, don't do stupid things, and don't annoy the shite out of all of us. Isn't it just much better? Aren't you happier? I know I am. We will have some Arsenal women chat a bit later on with Tim. He'll be here to talk about Jonas all the start to his career as head coach of Arsenal women, their incredible start to the new season and lots more. In a couple of moments' time, Nick Ames is here. Uh, we'll be chatting to him about all things Arsenal as well. Just a couple of things before we get into that. One, I want to say thank you very much indeed to everybody who sent birthday wishes on Sunday. Uh, I turned 50. It was a day of weird introspection and then Arsenal made it all the better. Thank you very much indeed for all the messages. There were lots of tweets and lots of emails and it's really difficult to reply to all of them. Uh, emails I will do. I've had, I've got a backlog of emails to get through. So if you've sent me something of late, uh, I'm not ignoring it. It's just been a really weird, difficult, stressful couple of weeks off the pitch. If you want to use that expression, I will get around to it. I just wanted to say thank you very much indeed to all of you uh, for those very kind birthday wishes, and I'm now 50 and a bit, and uh, I'm feeling okay about it now. I was a bit freaked out on Sunday, but hey, what can you do? Uh, the other thing is, if you enjoyed the Ian Wright It's a Great Day jingle, you can find it to listen to and to download on uh, SoundCloud. We have it on the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash blog and you'll see it up there. There is a way to download, particularly on desktop. I'm not sure about mobile, but if you're on a desktop computer, there's three little Dots there And if you click that, you get the option to download the file. I know a lot of you wanted to use the MP3 as your ringtone. Actually, what I'll do as well is I'll upload it to to the site, to arsblog.com. So if you want to use it as your ringtone, if you want to download it on your phone right now, uh, just go to the show notes, and you will find a link to open slash download the MP3. I don't know how you set it as a ringtone or whatever. Uh, I just, you know, I don't do that anymore, not since... Not since all the crazy frog stuff, you know. But look, it'll be there. There's a link in the show notes right now, and you can download the Ian Wright uh, It's a Great Day jingle from there. Okay, let's get on with it, and delighted to welcome to the show, as I said earlier, from The Guardian, Nick Ames. Hello, Nick. Hi, Andrew. Nice to be here. How are you? Good, thank you. We should talk about Emile smith and Bakayo Saka because clearly they are... Uh, really important pieces of this particular Arsenal puzzle. And we saw evidence of that, of course, on Sunday in the Derby when uh, both of them scored, both of them got an assist. Um, Garrett Southgate said today that Emile Smith-Rowe was very close to making the England squad, which tells you just, you know, what level of performance he's putting in. And Bakayo Saka, we know already, just starting with Smith-Rowe, one of the things that people were looking for from him this season was maybe a bit more end product. He has scored in the past, and he scored all throughout his youth career. But it can take a player a little while at times to sort of find their goal-scoring feet at, at senior level. It's uh, it's a very nice way to uh, make progress in that regard when you score the opening goal in a North London derby.
1: It really is, and it's funny because. Right before kickoff, I was having a conversation with, with my colleague Dave Heitner um, from um, from The Guardian, who, who who I'm sure some people may have read, um, and we were talking about Smithlow, and I was saying a very similar thing. I was saying that for all the brilliant industry and tempo and creativity and vigour that he adds to the team, what we maybe needed to see next was, um, for want of a better way of putting it, Increased numbers. when it came to M-Gredder and maybe goals and assists. No, I, w- I was quite encouraged by by the way he came on against Wimbledon last week and got a bit of a poacher's goal, didn't he, in, in, in the box when it kind of fell for him. Um, and I felt that that late run he made to get on the, on, on the end of, of Saka's cut back and and um, uh, and put it away so coolly, quite beautifully, was exactly the kind of thing that, if we're being harsh, he had been missing. And to add that to his game is quite something. And, and I think he's always had that timing. I think people who've, who've watched him at um, at youth level, under-23 level, even out on loan, would probably agree. But it's, it's not always straightforward to, to translate that, I think, for a young player into senior football. Sometimes you're a little bit more cautious about how you bomb on, how you gamble in the box and stuff like that at first. And I think he is adding that and I think he can do it. I don't I don't know that we should be putting pressure on him to score fifteen goals a season, but I think he can push on from here. I think he's he's definitely got that in his locker, in his locker. And I was delighted to see that be so conspicuously added to his game over the last week or so. And I think there's a lot more to come from him there. And I think um you Know we, and we all know how dynamic he is. I think we even saw him. I keep talking about the Wimbledon game, which was not the most important game of the last week. Um, and, but, and, but he did come on and lift a fairly mediocre performance, um, almost single handedly with the energy and verve and that he brought to it. And if you're adding those numbers as well in and around the penalty box, then you are one hell of a player. And it is no surprise that he was so close to being in the England squad. There were a few murmurs that he was around it, potentially. And I'm pretty sure that if he keeps this form going, he'll be very much in the mix next month.
2: The number 10 at Arsenal, at any big football club, is is a big number. It's a big number to take on. It's a no- big number to inherit. You, We've seen some incredible players wear that number in the past. But also with it comes you know, an expectation of performance as well, doesn't it? I know you say, like, we can't put pressure on him for 15 goals a season. That seems unrealistic, but you're also the number 10 at a club like Arsenal, and maybe it's not quite the Arsenal of the past, but it's an Arsenal that wants to get back there, and a key part of that is is a player in his position. So I don't know if it's just something we talk about as football fans, but do you think he would have felt any pressure of that number, or is that something that he would absolutely relish and take on like with the 10 comes that challenge and with that challenge comes a, a way of driving yourself and motivating yourself
1: yeah you know what um it's quite funny because i was walking to the game on sunday and for about half of my walk i was walking down hornsey road right behind a guy with a smith row 10 shirt and i was kind of thinking to myself wow you know for a boy from um, um, from from south london but who's been in the arsenal set up for that long, how often has this ever happened? How often does it happen? What what um, what a thing for him to be playing in a derby wearing number ten with people flocking to the ground wearing wearing his shirt. I was trying to put myself in his shoes, and obviously I, um, I couldn't do that, but it seemed such such a special thing. I think Smith Rowe really wanted that number ten shirt. I think he was he was very much up for it. Um, it, it was very much something that he wanted wanted to seize. I, I don't think it's cowed him at all I think he's someone who shows up for things, we've seen that all over the pitch um, never hides um, wants the ball keeps coming even if things aren't coming off and I think it was a challenge from from talking to people around the situation that he actively wanted in, um, in the summer and was never going to turn down and I think he's got that kind of personality where he's happy to take on those new challenges and and really handled with pressure And I, I don't think we've seen him wilt at all since he got that vacant in the team on Boxing Day.
2: But Kiyosaka played from the right, and we saw him play from the right a lot last season. And I'm of the opinion that he's got the quality to play pretty much anywhere, you know, behind the striker in midfield and what have you. But I think there's a growing uh, sense or whatever it might be that Saka from the right-hand side is probably the most effective Bakayo Saka when it comes to him producing and, and influencing games, not just with goals, not just with assists, but how he plays and and what he brings to the team in that position. Is that, is that something that you would share? A, uh, you know, his effectiveness from the right-hand side over other uh, areas of the pitch? And B, what, what about the dilemma that it then presents Arsenal because they have a very expensive player in Nicolas Pepe who, you know, I don't want to make this about his price tag, but primarily that is where he plays. And if Arsenal have Bakayo Saka doing what he does, it is a, it is a bit of a challenge to get both of these guys in the team. It is. Um, I mean, first of all on, on Bakayo I think we all
1: know he, um, he would probably give you a seven out of 10 every week, where, wherever he plays, except maybe in goal. Like he, he I and mean, he is that good. And that, tuned in to football and to what a coach wants and to what his job is on a pitch. I, I completely agree. I've, I've thought for quite a while that, um, that that right-sided role is probably his best. I mean, he he's, he's such a fascinating player because he can do the flying winger stuff, you know, going outside his man, and, and a trick or two, but I think there's a lot of a sort of David Silver about him—the kind of I mean, coming in and combining in little drops of a shoulder, little clever passes here and there, link ups with a striker, with his number ten, and everything. And I, I just think that is the role that looks most natural to him. He's good at going inside his man, good at going outside his man, good at popping up, maybe helping out in in that number ten position too. Um, and I think. What puts him ahead of Pepe is simply that ability to do that. The, um, the, the game intelligence, if you like, the knowing how to how to play the role tactically that we haven't always seen from Pepe. Pepe's got some fantastic attributes. We know that. He can, he can beat his man. He's got a left foot of that I, I think is quite clearly the best at the club, which you um, always expect him to put a shot on target when he unleashes it. But I think Saka... Saka is ahead of him in that position for now I I, I don't think that banishes Pepe or, or anything like that I think um, there's going to be injuries there's going to be lack of form there's going to be games piling up later in the season there's going to be times when when well, Arteta does want to mix things up and make use of the fact that he does have a very flexible front line, I think that's a really good thing about what Arsenal have got now. You could play Smith-Rowe out wide or in the middle. You could play Saka, as we've discussed, in any of those positions. You could play Pepe left or right. Um, there's a lot of options to mix things up. But I do think Pepe, just in terms of maybe the subtlety to his play and the combinations and the intensity and the nuance that has been added to... So what may be in previous years has has been a bit of a sterile, sterile line um, behind the striker. Um, I I think Saka brings a lot more to it.
2: It feels sometimes as if Pepe is just not quite um, not quite suited to the way Mikel Arteta wants to play. If you like that, he is. He brings this element of chaos to proceedings, which can be really really useful. And in full flight, of course, he is. Uh, You know, he's really effective. I think he was second or maybe uh, had the most goal contributions last season when you combine goals and assists. So there is like mature, developed end product in there, but it's always felt to me like there's a slight incompatibility uh, between him and perhaps the, the style of the coach, which can be a bit galling when the style doesn't work or when Arsenal aren't achieving results. Um, it's difficult maybe to understand, you know, what, what he's doing with a player like Pepe, but when it comes off, when it, uh, you know, the system, when the formation, when it delivers like it did on Sunday in the Derby, you can see, you know, how it might be difficult for him to win his place back.
1: Yeah, I think I, th- I think Saka is just for somebody of his age an extraordinarily plugged in, and intelligent character. I, I I don't think I've come across too many young players who play in in his position positions, especially who are who are maybe quite as savvy and tactically plugged in. I keep saying that, but I think it's the right phrase um, as he is, and I think that's a lot of the reason why Arteta the coach is, and so many people around the club absolutely love him. Pepe, I don't think he has got that. I think he's got better actually in terms of his game and, and understanding and, and and his combinations and I think that towards the end of the last season I was kind of thinking to myself is is Pepe going to be one of those players who he blows up in the new season you know haven't seen it yet he's not really had the chance to do it I I think it is going to be very hard for him to win his place back but I also think there will be opportunities I just um, I, I, I can't see for one minute that we're going to have a season where all of the 11 who also who are now playing so well are fit and firing or that we're going to have a scenario where Arteta doesn't want to mix things up a bit and use that versatility and variety that he now has got that he's maybe not had before.
2: Let's talk about Granishaka a bit because um, his start to the season wasn't great, obviously. Uh, he was sent off against Manchester City. He was in the team when Arsenal were losing. He went away with Switzerland and couldn't play because he caught COVID. He came back. He came straight back into the team. I think he played pretty well against Spurs, but obviously he's picked up a... a, a a significant injury is what Arsenal said. Uh, it could have been worse. He's got medial li- uh, knee ligament damage. Going to be out for three months. Um, whether people are uh, favorably disposed to Granish Acker or not, he is a player that Mikel Arteta and managers before him have relied on, um, we could debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but it's still a statement of fact that when he's available he pretty much plays all the time for for Mikel Arteta. So this absence leaves him with some thinking to do um, when he lost a key player last season in Kieran Tierney I, he overthought it in my opinion he played granite shaka at left back which i don't think was the right thing to do because it meant changing so much else about the way that the team was structured in order to to try and find balance with shaka in that position i'm hoping he's kind of learned from that and he does have options to him we saw against burnley there was the 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 more four three three where he had Partey and he had Odegar and smithrow and Maybe this is what gets Pepe back into the team. Who knows? Because he then had a, had space for an extra attacking player. That is another option to him. But he also has another big, uh, well, big summer signing, a relatively big summer signing in Albert Sambi-Lokonga, who will be relishing the opportunity to take Shaka's place, I guess. So it will be interesting to see how he decides he's going to to deal with the Shaka absence. Um, you feel like there are certain games which would suit that 4-3-3 more Others where Partey is going to need a bit more help and that's probably where Lokonga will come in.
1: Yeah, firstly I I do feel sorry for Shaka after his performance on Sunday because okay, there's the school of thought that maybe him playing that well was just a bonus and the team's evolving that he'll be phased out of it eventually anyway. But I thought he 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 put in, in exactly the kind of performance that shows what he can do. I think if you put in the kind of movement that Arsenal have now got, that we've spoken about a bit, behind the attacker and in those wide positions, then having a player like Shaka who can kind of unlock it with some of his passes from deep, it kind of plays to each other's strengths. And I thought he he was fantastic at that, especially in the first half on Sunday. I thought he was absolutely outstanding and I I wrote a piece about it from the Emirates actually I I decided pretty much by half time that I was going to write my sidebar article which is a sort of supplementary piece to the match report that we do uh, about Granit Xhaka and it was very interesting reading below the line in the comments section the next morning which is not normally a wise place for a journalist to venture um, but I looked beneath it and it it was about 300 Arsenal fans commenting and I would say about 50% of them were saying, what the hell are you on about? He was a walking red card, and the other fifty percent were, yeah, he was, oh, he was fantastic. Yeah, too right, can't agree, and, and can't agree more. And that kind of sums up his Arsenal career and perceptions of him in a nutshell, doesn't it? He's absolute marmite, um, but um, he was very good. I think you can see why why Arteta put him in. Yeah, a bit of. A bit of help for party who is gonna need that. And I think what this will probably do, I, I think, is hasten perhaps the evolving towards the four three three that you just mentioned, which can also sometimes become a bit of a four-one, four one, can't it, with with party that bit deeper and making use out wide a bit more. Um so I think I think we might see a Brighton party in there with um Odegaard and Smith-Rowe slightly ahead could be a chance for Pepe. That means out wide. I think Sambi Lokonga has done enough so far to prove that he is a very credible option to go alongside party. And there, what I love about Lokonga, and I loved it even in that Brentford game that was otherwise completely unspeakable from an Arsenal perspective, was that he plays with his head up all the time. He's got the next move and he's he's got the next move mapped out in his head. And in that regard he he almost reminded me a little bit of a Jack wilshire or someone like that. That's that's not that's only one way in which I'm comparing them. But he has got that kind of scanning, I think they call it, um, ability. So I don't think he'd let anyone down if he played in there and I I think he would be Arteta's next choice ahead of someone like Maitland Niles or El Nini. I think we may well we may well see that set up with Party alongside Conga or someone in, in the bigger games, you know, the equivalent games to Spurs. I mean, I think Liverpool's only a month away now, isn't it? Something like that. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if this kind of, not forced Arteta's hand, but hastened what we know he wants to do which is move towards that 4-3-3 kind of setup. that clearly he is the most comfortable with playing
2: There is a big onus now on Thomas Partey A to uh, stay fit but B to deliver the kind of performances that Arsenal will have paid the money for that Arsenal you know they paid a big transfer fee to Atletico Madrid he was unlucky in his first season. He did have injuries. He picked up an injury, unlucky again at the start of this season. But with Jack absent, he really is the senior man in the in the key area of of the pitch and the key area of the team now. So I think it's well within his capabilities to to be that guy, to be that prominent player, to be that leader, if you like, in terms of how he plays. But you know, it it is a precarious situation as well, given his injury track record that if something goes wrong with him again, Arsenal begin to look very um a bit callow in there. That would be um maybe that's a bit harsh, but you know what I mean? There's 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 a definite lack of experience, you know, you could use Almany, but that's not going to excite anyone. Um so there is a big weight of responsibility on Thomas Parte's shoulders now.
1: Yeah, Partey party was signed Specifically, I think to to facilitate that move towards a four three three because he is good enough, as you've said, to hold it all together from deep. And I thought, looking back at that Chelsea friendly when he got injured, I think it was was it early in the second half. But I remember watching the first half of that and just thinking he is two times the player that I saw last season for Arsenal. He he had gone up a couple of gears. He looked fit. He was probably the best player on that pitch. Um, he he looked like a player who could absolutely dominate matches against anyone. Um, now he's back again. I thought he was out, outstanding alongside Xhaka, um against Spurs. I think I think he's got that ability both to play those passes on the ball maybe quite quickly and sharply that maybe other Arsenal midfielders don't have. He can move the ball on very quickly over a distance as well. But he's got that defensive now that we um, that we all know about. He knows when to sit. He knows when when to clean up. Just needs to work on my shooting, really. Um, so I think he is now vital. I think, as you've alluded to, Arsenal are kind of one-time as party injury away from from what we'd call a midfield crisis, I guess. But, but let's not go that far. Um and it's asking a lot. It is asking a lot for him to play the next... I mean, I, I think I worked out Shaq is going to miss 14 games in, in the Premier League if the prognosis is accurate to the week. It's asking a lot for party to play all of them. We haven't, haven't seen him do that yet. Then again, he wasn't a particularly injury-prone sort of constant member of the Atletico Madrid treatment room. So maybe the law of averages says... And it will be helped by the fact that there aren't many midweek games coming up. Lord Averages says it's about time he got a good good run of games together. In which case I think that does help Arteta to be able to push you on and play that 4-3-3 because you've got that stability with party in there that he hasn't had before. Also helps that there's now a fairly stable centre-back partnership, I think, White and Gabriel, that maybe there hasn't been for a few years. So I think the tools are there, but you're right. There's a lot on Party's shoulders now. You don't really want to con- contemplate too much for, um, the options if he's not there. Um, but I don't know whether I don't really know whether that means they need to look in January, adding more depth um, to that position. Really, because you would think that with Party and um, and Shaka normally, that's two senior, experienced players who, um, who are fit most of the time and able to do the job in there. And then you've got players like and Maitland-Nowers and Elneny, if you need um, who can back it up. So I don't know whether the resources are particularly slim. I think they'd just be very unlucky if they lost both Shaka and Party.
2: Yeah, I you know Shaka's is fairly robust. I don't think he's ever had a real serious injury during his, his uh, what feels like many, many, many years at Arsenal. But uh, hopefully he can recover fully and get back uh, soon. But let's talk just a little bit about Mikel Arteta and You know, as somebody who is on the beat, if you like, and has worked the press conferences and um, you've been able to see the way he's operated, do you detect a fairly big change in his demeanor over the last few weeks? Um, we, we keep referencing on the Arscast extra, myself and James, this idea that, you know, the, the postman city funk was the best 10 or 15 days of his career. And, you know, on face, if you take it at face value, it, it seems a bit mad to say something like that. But there was an interesting comment from Lukonga, um, when he was talking in midweek to a Belgian football magazine where he said the start to the season, paraphrasing here, basically made everyone come together. Um, Arteta has elicited three wins from a team which, you know, maybe in other circumstances or for other coaches might well have downed tools. We've seen that happen in in easier ways before. But I don't think you can win the games that Arsenal did in the manner in which they won them without having the players on board, without some belief in what you're doing, some togetherness within the squad and everything else. So, you know, it feels like he's... he's um, He's appreciative of that support, whether, you know, it's one thing getting the, the, the endorsement from the board, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for football managers is another question. But you know it, by the way, that your players do what you ask them to do or don't do what you ask them to do. And clearly over those last three games, they've worked really hard, played really, really well against Spurs as well as working hard. So little green shoots, little steps forward. And I think he is in some ways, um, appreciative slash humble by it. Uh, and you can see that in the way that he talks. Yeah. I think he was
1: relieved as well, because I think, you know, you, um, you put together a fairly expensive, fairly new team, or at least a half of a new team almost. And then you have a start of a season um, that Arsenal had, some of which was in their power, a lot of which wasn't, as we know, there was COVID issues and other things. And then you all begin on that kind of footing you know it's, it, it 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 could stretch the the belief of any new arrival it could stretch the um, the motivation of the squad that is already there so so i think when he saw in that week and a half two weeks off that they were fighting for him and that they were listening to his ideas and that they were totally on board with it i think as he said already, I think it must have been a, a massive boost for him, a massive vote of confidence because if, um, at the end of the day, if the players aren't on board, it doesn't matter what your board of directors think of you, it doesn't matter what the fans think of you, anything like that. And I think we can see, I mean, I've, I've, I've pretty much um, I'm just, I'm just come off one of his press conferences, actually, um, the, the pre-match for Brighton and then I think he's he's always quite guarded in his dealings with the media. I think the Zoom format doesn't help because you can't really generate much warmth in the room. and <laughs> I think a lot of us are, are fairly hacked, um, hacked off with that by now. Um, but I think you watch him during the games and there's that bit of animation about him. I think the interaction with the crowd is so important to him. There was a lovely moment after the Wimbledon game on Wednesday when a lot of the crowd stayed behind to kind of w- watch the broadcast interviews which have been playing and al- which have been taking place alongside the side of, of the pitch these days. And he took loads of selfies and autographs and stuff like that afterwards and had that bit of communion with them that, you know, that he hadn't been able to have for, for nearly two years. And I, okay, it's a like cut game with Wimbledon who cares but this was really important to him you could tell that and he referenced it afterwards I think you could see by the intensity of his reactions on Sunday just how much it meant he was living every moment kicking every ball on the pitch and his celebrations were quite something else so I think I think he's really rising to the situation around him I think he's feeding off this extra level of positivity and dynamism that the crowd have got too. And I think, I think he really appreciates as well how the atmosphere has been inside the stadium. I know I was quite interested by some of, of, um, of the debate after the Norwich game actually, because, you know, a lot sometimes gets made of the Emirates crowd, whether they moan a bit too much or whether it's a positive or negative atmosphere and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I did think that the atmosphere against Norwich was particularly positive and, particu- and particularly affirmative and particularly important, given that the team had come off, and off the back of three absolute disasters, given that they didn't play that well against Norwich, who, who were bottom and hadn't scored, I don't think, but they eked out the win. And I never heard a murmur of dissent or negativity in there. It was fantastic support. And the manager picks up on that. And I think that really boosted him too and maybe led him to say a, a bit of stuff that he said after the game because he felt his public were completely behind him. And I think, that's, and I think that atmosphere carried on, carried on in, into the Wimbledon game and, you know, times 10 in into Spurs. So I think, he's, um, I think he feels now that maybe for the first time he's got a groundswell of people being behind him from every single angle. And I think, I think maybe in the COVID environment, where so many things are being done remotely, um, where you can't be face to face with people, when there were no fans for so long it, um, in the stadium, it's probably quite easy to be haunted by a bit of self-doubt when you haven't really got people in your face telling you that you're good anyway, <laughs> or giving you that motivation. So I think I think there's a lot of um, relief from him, and I think as you as you say, I'm humbled, grateful. Well, I think it's justified in what we've seen and what the supporters have seen from how the team has evolved and come together
2: in recent weeks. Just finally, if Arsenal were to beat Brighton and look, nobody's taking anything for granted and Arteta was quite clear in the press conference today, wasn't he, about how... You know, you can't rest on your laurels just because you beat Spurs. You've got to start producing consistently, and that will mean winning games like Brighton. But if they do uh, go to Brighton and win, they'll have 12 points. If Liverpool win their game at the weekend, they'll have 17 points. I think if you said to people, there'd be a five point difference between Arsenal and the league leaders, you know, after the first three games stick another four games on that and you'll, you know, be only five points behind the league leaders. And this is, I'm not suggesting that this is a title challenge or a charge or anything like that. Just a a, a look at where uh, Arsenal could be if they beat Brighton. Um, it does feel an awful lot better uh, for very, very obvious reasons. Um, but it's also a sign that like things can change pretty quickly in football for good and for worse so that that really does demand that consistency you know if we feel better after three games if Arsenal lose the next three it'll be straight back into crisis mode
1: yeah and look it's it's a big opportunity coming up now I think massive opportunity I think Burton is a very very hard game I think if you take the emotional aspect out of it I think on the pitch, it may even be a harder game than Spurs because I think they're an excellent team. I think they've got quite a few similarities to Arsenal, actually, in the way that Potter sets them up. Um I, It'll be interesting. I, I think a lot might hinge on whether Bissouma's back from injury for Brighton or not, but either way, going to be a tough game. Um But if you look at the run ahead now, and I've, I've just got it in front of me, I think it's Brighton, then it's Palace, and then it's Villa... Then it's then it's Leicester away who um, who look a bit wobbly. Then it's Watford, and then then you've got that Liverpool game in mid to late November. That is a good run of five to six games, and we've seen before that this team can put a run together. It put a run together at, um, at the end of last season, which kind of got swept away a bit because you know the finish was still nowhere near good enough. But this is an opportunity in a league that. Maybe apart from Man City and and Liverpool and Chelsea, is very topsy-turvy. Very topsy-turvy. We've seen some funny results already. We've seen teams coming off off the back of European games with some weird results. We've seen quite a lot of strange stuff. So I think consistency now is absolutely everything. I think you'd probably, I think you're right. You'd probably take this position now um, and at the proximity to the top four, five, six. Um, um, a couple of months ago and I see no reason why Arsenal can't narrow that gap a bit further if they keep winning games it was a really good run
2: alright well look let's hope they can keep doing that as ever uh, thanks so million for your time Nick really appreciate it and we'll catch up soon thanks Andrew cheers thank you very much indeed to Nick you can read him in The Guardian and of course you can find him on Twitter at NickAmes82 at NickAmes82 Yeah, I played it again. So what? What are you going to do? Report me to the It's a Great Day Police? Come on. you got to milk a win in the Derby as much as possible. And look, I'm still feeling very good about that game on Sunday. I'm feeling positive about what it means for our future. Maybe it's misplaced. Maybe I'm just being a crazy old optimist. But I want to enjoy a win like that for as long as possible, even late into the week. But hey, I think we deserve it. I think we as fans have had some tough times already this season so i think it behooves us to enjoy the good things for as long as possible right as i said earlier we have some arsenal women chat and a bit more with tim stillman hello tim hello there it's a case of, like, anything you can do, we can do better when it comes to uh, the Arsenal women. Arsenal beat Tottenham on Sunday in the North London Derby 3-1. Arsenal women beat uh, their counterparts 5-1 to reach the semifinals at the FA Cup, coming after a big win against Manchester City as well. We'll talk about the specifics of those uh, games in a moment, but just overall... What's your uh, take on how things have gone for uh, Jonas Idova so far? I mean, am I right in saying that um, in all of the games that that, uh, we've played under him, we've never scored fewer than three goals? There have been some huge wins, big wins over big opposition. I mean, is this going better than you could have expected? 100%
0: One hundred percent, yes. Um, particularly those those big be- uh, beating Chelsea on the opening day, and then beating Manchester City five nil. You know, you talk about the women doing what the men can do better. I mean, they had a five nil scoreline against Manchester City, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but in their favour on this occasion. One hundred percent, it is. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and there are still some things Jonas and some of the players are talking about. They know they've had a little bit of an advantage in the early part of the season, because they had those Champions League qualifiers, they started their season earlier than anyone else. Mm. So particularly in that Chelsea game, for example, they had a bit of an advantage because they'd had three competitive games when they played Chelsea. Whereas Chelsea and Manchester City, well, Chelsea, Man City and Arsenal had lots of players away at the Olympics in July. And most of those teams, what they've had to do is give those players time off, but then get them back late. Mm what Arsenal had to do was give them no time off at all, well, a couple of days, get them back from Japan and get them playing Champions League qualifiers. So at the moment, that aspect's working really well because they're nice and sharp, but they all acknowledge that that might take a toll later in the season. So they're kind of keeping their feet on the ground about that. But I I think what's really, really evident is just how quickly things have changed, um, both in Arsenal's approach under Jonas. So the squad is bigger. Um, and he rotates it a lot and he says look two aspects one we're going to be playing lots of games champions league group stage this year for the first time ever that means more games than ever i have to rotate but also the physical demands he puts on the players he's put on in this kind of new style of play where they're asked to press a lot more Mm. and particularly his wide forwards there's there's lots of big quality wide forwards there now and he's just said look they, they can't play every game because I'm going to ask them to press and run and Harry and hassle and they're not going to be able to play 90 minutes a lot of the time so I need to be able to sub them off Yeah. so there's a lot more rotation going on there's a different style of play but I think really what's happened is just I, I said a couple of times on this podcast it went a bit stale under Joe I think everyone knows that and things are just being done slightly differently. And at the moment it's that honeymoon period where new feel, where new equals different equals good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, was that the main uh, difference between uh, the style of football under Joe, who, you know, was a hugely popular guy. Um, you know, as a manager, I think everyone had a huge amount of time for him. But I think you said one of the question marks was the performance in big games. Is the is the way that Jonas is asking them to play in a way, an attempt to try and combat that? So if you're going to play like that in those big games, you've got to play like that in all the other games as well.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I think the thing is, like with Joe's style, Joe style beat all of the teams that Arsenal mm. should have beaten like their record against everyone like other than Chelsea and Man City was almost perfect almost so his mm. style of football beat those teams and beat them easily but it, it just didn't, it just couldn't do it in the bigger games. And what's really changed, when um, the Arsenal-Man City game on Sunday, which Arsenal won 5-0, just to repeat that, um, <laughs> at half-time, Arsenal had a 2-0 lead. At half-time, Manchester City had had 71% possession. And that wasn't even just game state. That was how the game was going from the start. And basically what Arsenal did, it was so pragmatic... Um, in terms of, and, and I spoke to Jonas about this afterwards, and he said, look, we know Man City like to pass the ball and we know they, they like to have a high line. So we just made the decision, let's sit off them. And then when we get the ball, let's just ping it over the top of their their mm. defence. And, uh, you know, not not quite Wimbled, late 80s yeah, Wimbledon yeah, yeah, yeah. style, <laughs> um, you know, long passes rather than like long balls. Mm. But the, the idea this season, and, and it worked Beautifully, They just, honestly, it was just like, you know how the Falklands was a range war and like England had like longer range in their missiles? It was like that. Like Man City just kept passing the ball in front of Arsenal and they just said, whenever you're ready, give it to us. There we go, we'll ping it over the top. Yeah. And they just got through them over and over again. That, that is not the way that Arsenal would have played under Joe Montemoro. But the other thing, kind of key thing that's changed and changed quite quickly was that under Joe, they had much more of like a snake charmer style in possession. The whole idea was built on, and this really worked against the smaller teams. When teams sit back on us, pass the ball around defence, around Mm -hmm. midfield, and try and tempt them away, and then when they all kind of creep up the pitch then go in behind them. Yeah. Whereas under Jonas, the idea is much more get the ball forward a lot more quickly. That doesn't necessarily always mean long balls, but get it forward more quickly. And don't worry if the pass is not hugely accurate because then you can counter-press. And Arsenal got a lot of players that can do that. So the the idea is built much more on get the ball forward quickly. And even if you don't get it right... Um, you know, when when the defence, the opposition defence get it or they try to clear it, you can pounce on them and get on them again. Yeah, And so it's, that, that's much more the style this time around. And, and it, I always felt that it suited the forward players that Arsenal have.
2: Is there a sense that maybe with some of the new arrivals as well that, you know, there's a bit of star power arrived in Tobin Heath, but the technical level of some of the players that have been brought in has really had a positive impact as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things Jonas keeps talking about in terms of having a slightly bigger squad as well, as he says, that, that's not just uh, useful in the games and the substitutions you can make and things like that. But he says in training, that's really useful because it keeps the level really, really high. And when, uh, you know, like the Tobin Heath signing, that mm. you reference that was done a few weeks ago, but she stayed in the U.S. for a little bit because she was playing for the U.S. national team and she came over last week and actually I think even if it's not by design that's been kind of the perfect way to do it because there was the big kind of oh my god we're signing Tobin Heath and it all broke so quickly and certainly for for us anyway yeah. it happened so quickly the players knew about it and then then there was a bit of a lull for a couple of weeks and Arsenal won some games and started the season and now she's here and now she's come to London Colney and, you know, Arsenal made a 13-minute video about her first 48 hours at Arsenal, which that, that tells you a little bit about her star power, right? Yeah. And after both of the games she's been involved in, Arsenal always tweet out a video, like, of one of the players afterwards saying, you know, thank you to the fans or buy tickets for the next game or, or whatever, both times Tobin Heath. Um, Josh Cronkey came over to meet her. Like, they understand both the off-pitch and the on-pitch value of signing this player, particularly... Yeah when they've got a few big players who've got one year on their contracts, who they're trying to convince of their ambition, a a signing like Tobin Heath does that, Mm. um, or at least hopefully does that. Anyway, it certainly takes them closer, but definitely. And I think um, when you look at the form of someone like Beth Mead, who's played well for the last kind of three, four seasons that she's been at Arsenal, she's been a mainstay in the team and deservedly so, she's gone up a level this year and she's probably the, the best performer at the moment of the mm. season. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Arsenal have brought in Nikita Paris, who she competes with for the right wing birth for England and Tobin Heath. I don't think it's like any surprise <laughs> that Beth Mead has gone up another level now.
2: Yeah. I mean, healthy competition. It's hard sometimes to get that balance right, but it certainly looks as if it's working uh, at the moment. I just want to go back to something that we talked about um, Last time we were talking about Arsenal women and maybe something we were talking about during the summer as well. I'm just trying to get it up here because uh, I've forgotten it. But basically, it was to do with... um the sort of internal review of what was going on at Arsenal Women, uh, which was taking place during the summer. It was announced during the summer. I think uh, Vinay spoke about how they're going to invest more than ever before into the women's team. And it came at a time, I think, where all the focus, of course, was on the men's team. And it's hard to see the wood for the trees and, and everything else. But. These things that have been put in place, this internal review, this design, if you like, to try and raise the level of the team, because I don't think it's just about the the, the Women's Super League. Obviously, the Champions League is a, is a big prize and a big ambition for the coach, the players and for the club as well, but a recognition that maybe it wasn't quite within grasp. It does look as if these things have come together pretty well so far. Um, you know, the new coach, I think we said last time, were we slightly encouraged by some of the decision makers at the executive level making decisions for the women's team, which appear to be like smart and clever? Does that give yeah. us some hope for what's happening at, at, at uh, with the men's team? I think we still have a little way to go, but certainly things are looking a bit better than they were, you know, three or four weeks ago. So that whole restructuring uh, internal review thing appears to be paying off.
0: Yeah, massive tick. It has to be said, massive tick. Um, even last night, uh, Jonas was at pains to point out the role of Gary Lewin. Uh, Gary Lewin is now the head of uh, medicine and sports science for the women's team. That's the first time that role has ever really existed. Mm. They've had like strength and conditioning lead coaches, usually on casual contracts, but they've got, you know, and, and like a real Arsenal man in Gary Lewin as well. But but not just because he's an Arsenal man. Like we know that he's good at his job. We know he knows his shit Yeah, yeah. on stuff like that. And Arsenal know that. And he'd done some like casual work with the team a couple of years earlier. He's got his own clinic, um, I believe, with his brother um, or someone in his family. I can't quite remember. It's closer, and so, isn't um, it? The, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And a lot of the players have used that, so he's familiar with the players anyway. Mm. Um, but last night, Jonas, he was asked about squad rotation, and at the moment. You know, yeah, I said one of the big challenges under Joe was um, injuries. Um, not sure how far that was Joe's fault or whether that was just because we didn't have someone like Gary Lew in there. Um, only one injury in the first team squad at the moment. So, you know, last night, uh, sorry, Wednesday night, they play Spurs. Vivian medema not even not even called for, unused sub, um, and they're able to bring on substitutes like Beth Mead and Kim Little um, towards the end. So. But the thing he said last night when he was asked about the squad rotation was he said, Mm. you can have all the players in the world, but if they're not available, it doesn't matter. Um, And he said in his own words that the biggest signing Arsenal made this summer was Gary Lewin. Um, Just to have that level of expertise and to have... And, you know, he he was asked a couple of weeks ago about players who'd come back, like, maybe even slightly early from injury. So some people might remember Jordan Nobbs turned her ankle in a very similar way to how Thomas Partey did on the same day at the Emirates in Mm. pre-season against Chelsea. And that looked horrible. Um, I was really thinking, oh God, have we lost Jordan for the whole season? Um, And look, I'm not not putting it down to Gary Lewin that, that, you know, obviously there was some fortune, I guess, in the diagnosis. But she's back, like, probably ahead of schedule. Mm. Um, Quite a few players have have come back. Players that were out for a lot of last season. Vicky Schneiderbeck played um, on Wednesday evening. She's been out since November. So, again, it's too early to say that's definitely down to Gary Lewin and something has definitely changed there. It might just be variants um, and we'll know more in a couple of months and players will get injured because they're playing every three days now till Christmas. But that, that really does seem to be a really, really critical signing. And not least, not just because of the injury management side, but with this new style of play, which is more demanding physically, particularly on the forward players. And Jonas knows that. Um, because he's been playing that way his whole career. He understands the demands mm. he's putting on them. So I think Gary and other members of staff um, that, that they've added in the back room have been really, really critical to that process.
2: The players have to get on board with that idea of rotation as well, though, don't they? Because we can yep. sit here as uh, pundits or fans or whatever and think about, well, you know, it makes all kinds of sense, you know, to rotate players and bring players in and leave players on the bench, but players want to play. Pretty much every player wants to play as much as possible. Uh, So that is going to be a challenge. I think you're right to say there are going to be inevitable injuries, aches and strains, suspension or two along the way, and that kind of eases that pressure. But it is going to be maybe a challenge as the season progresses when you do have that amount of quality in the squad, which is on the one hand a really, really good and positive thing. But on the other that quality wants perhaps to play a bit more. So it is something he's gonna to have to contend with. It is. Um I,
0: I think I think the answer to that is fairly constant rotation in terms of you know, he was he made eight changes for the Spurs game compared to the Man City game. But I think his line will be there's another game on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if you didn't play in this one, you'll play in the next one. Um, And I think he's very willing, like he will not have a starting 11 in mind. There'll be two or three players like Vivian Medema, Kim Little, like Leah Williamson, players Mm. like that who will play most games. But I think the message is there are plenty of minutes to go around. I think there are are two other key things here. From from speaking to players over the last couple of seasons under Joe, when perhaps there wasn't quite as much rotation, players do want to play, but they also want to compete. They're... um, they're weird footballers I find with like how competitive they are and they want like, like most of us in our jobs don't fucking want that. Do we (laughs) We just want to, we want to get away with doing as little as possible, quite (laughs) frankly, but like elite sports people are, are, freaks frankly and they want to be pushed and this this is something that a few of the players have kind of said or implied over the last couple of years that kind of no no like I want to be pushed I like I take that as a challenge when someone comes in because I know Mm. it raises my level but also this is the first year that the Champions League has a group stage for for women's football so what happened previously was it was straight knockout. So you'd go into around 32, then 16. So there's four extra games been added in the Champions League in the autumn. So that th- there's more club football than ever. The other thing that's happened might sound slightly counterintuitive that on Wednesday night, what Arsenal played was an FA Cup quarterfinal. It's from last season's FA Cup because they had to suspend the women's FA Cup. So if Arsenal get to the final, which they should now, because they've been drawn at home to Brighton in the semis, that's another three games during the winter mm. that don't usually happen where they're finishing up last season's FA Cup. And then in January, it all starts again. So like, the, it's kind of unprecedented the amount of club games there are. Typically in the women's game, there are a lot more internationals in the women's game than there are, are in the men's game. So mm. there's still games but not quite as many so actually the demand on players is going to be greater this season and like i said in arsenal's case we had arsenal had nine players at the olympics so nine players spent their whole july and june as well in tokyo playing olympic football doing all of the pre like pre olympic friendlies like nine players in that squad have had no time off um basically this mm. summer and there's a euros next summer Um, And then there's a World Cup the year after that. So there's like three tournament years back to back. A lot of those players aren't going to get any rest for like three years. So it it is more important than ever that that they're rotated and they're fresh. And I think the players know that that will bring the best out of them as well. It's something Vivian Miedema again pointed to in preseason. She kind of said, maybe I won't have to play every minute of every game anymore. And uh, look, Viv's in a position where she can say that because she knows that she is the first choice striker. No, Nobody in the world is taking that that role away from her. So mm. I guess she can maybe, um, I don't want to say afford to be blasé, but, you know, she can kind of say, yeah, I need a rest once in a while. Whereas other players mm. who are perhaps in more competition um, don't have to, but nevertheless, I, th- I think the players welcome it. I really do. Well, you mentioned
2: uh, Vivian Miedema and you referenced earlier players with one year left on their contracts who Arsenal are trying to convince to sign on. Um, Is it simply a case of Arsenal being a team where she feels she can compete for and win the highest honors in the game? Like if that is apparent to her, do you think Arsenal's chances of convincing her to sign a new contract are, are good? 100% 100% that is what it's all about Arsenal
0: are, are simultaneously lucky and unlucky in <laughs> this respect in that Viv will not just go anywhere from from what I can pick up um, she won't just go to Leon and say, "All right, I'll go there and win the chat." I mean, I don't know. She might go there, but mm. like a lot of players, will take that take the Leon option because they're like, "Okay, I'll win the Champions League there." I, I think she's a bit more selective. She's more. She's very interested in the style of football teams play. She's very interested in the league, and she's very interested in like where they're situated. Um, she's very settled in London. Um, I know that. I know she likes London a lot. I know she likes Arsenal a lot. So mm. like Arsenal, they definitely have a chance if they can convince her, but it will not be a case of throwing money at it. That, that, yeah. that I can tell you. And and in one respect, that's maybe where Arsenal are unlucky because Arsenal could make the decision. Do you know what? We'll just throw the absolute banker to keep you here um, because it's worth our while. Um, th- that won't convince her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not really about money either. So um you know, she's much more a player who will who will take other things into account. But the thing is, she's 25 now, so she knows her next contract to her peak years. Mm. And, you know, even as an Arsenal fan, for, for Vivian Miedemann not to win the Champions League at some point in her career would be an absolute travesty. It really would. She should have won it already, like, pretty much every year, to be honest. she's mm. She's the best player in the world. So... Really, that that's the kind of the question, I think. Can Arsenal compete at that level? Can Arsenal take on the lions Chelsea as well, who are... Like, I mean, two of them are in the division at the moment in Chelsea and Man City. So mm. there is like a regular um, kind of barometer there. But Arsenal have also drawn, drawn Barcelona, um, the defending champions, in the group stage this year and play them next week. That will give you a really good indication of where Arsenal are, against the best team in the world. Those two games, I think, will be quite important. They'll be really useful for Arsenal because, frankly, they're probably not going to win either of them, but it it might it, it will tell us a lot about where Arsenal are in in that kind of respect, in yeah. terms of the best
2: team out there. Well, you know, when they've beaten Chelsea, who are champions last season, beaten Man City, but didn't just beat Man City, demolished Man City, you know, 5-0. Um, the trajectory appears to be you know going in in the right direction obviously um those barcelona games i think will be will be very interesting and very exciting i think as well you're going Uh, And we'll have plenty of coverage for us um, on Arsebog News. When is the next Arsenal Women Arscast? Do we know yet?
0: So, um, yes, we're probably going to drop a bit of a Barcelona preview um, early next week before I fly out. Um, Alex, one of our co-hosts, is an absolute expert on all things Barcelona. So we'll probably drop a short Barca
2: preview for you early next week. All right. Um, Before we go... It would be remiss of us not to just reference, um, you know, the the last three games that Arsenal have played, and in particular the game on on Sunday, uh, the three one win in the derby. Without wanting to go over all of it again, and obviously it was very exciting and very enjoyable, and we're all still uh, having a good time and a good laugh at the expense of of them. What was for you um, like the main takeaway from that game, based on what we'd seen against Norwich, what we'd seen against Burnley? And the sort of overall situation that that the football club found itself in, Mikel Arteta found himself in, the players found themselves in, you know, it felt like there was a lot to prove um, in particular with that that Tottenham game. So your main takeaway from it, if you can distance yourself from just the sheer happiness of of winning that game. (laughs)
0: Yeah, indeed. I think um, I think we all had a big red ring around the calendar for this game, and more so than ever for a North yeah. London derby, because I think we all knew how pivotal this was and how much of a measuring stick it probably is for where we are. Because whether mm. we like it or not, we're we're in direct competition with Spurs um, in terms of the league table, um, and probably will be again this season. Um, so I think we all knew, and I think a lot of us were kind of holding back after Burnley and Norwich and saying, Okay, only Burnley, only Norwich, let's see what we do here. This is the game where it really matters and not just because of the local pride angle, but because of mm. you know Spurs are in a, a similar position to us really, or at least they have been for the last few years. So, you know, some some of those things that maybe some of those Doubts. Um, I don't know uh, over those two games. I remember talking about the Norwich game and kind of saying we won't know whether this was just a fluky one-nil win over the worst team in the division or the first building block. We won't know that for a couple of weeks. I think we can say that that's the building block now. Mm. I think my main takeaway from it, though, is not in terms of looking back; it's in terms of looking forward. And the, the the first thing is the level of end product from some of those players like Smithrow and Saka, who we know are talented players, but we know they need to come up um, in that respect, especially when you take a player like Pepe out of the team. Um, but for me, like this Spurs game has to act like the beginning of something, not the culmination of something. So. Mm-hmm it makes me think of that Chelsea game on boxing day last year which was also which was a very similar game actually yeah. where we go 3-0 up and then Chelsea get one back but and how that behaved as a springboard and that made the penny drop and and it propelled us to like 3 or 4 months of really good form that's what this has to do so as fun as sunday was and i'm still kind of basking in it a little yeah. bit i think like everyone else uh, at least until saturday What has to happen now is that has to be the start of something, and I think what's really interesting when you look at what Arsenal and Spurs did: Spurs left all their new signings on the bench. Arsenal started all of their guys, and I I loved that tweet from I think it was Sam Dean about six new signings and five guys that Arteta gave a contract to. Yeah, I think something he's really done since the international break is almost like almost have like a bit of a cordon sanitaire around his team and say, right, these are my guys now. Mm. And um, even like Lacazette, I'm not saying like he's banishing the others or telling them to F off or whatever, but it's like some of those guys aren't even coming off the bench at the moment. I think there's been a real sense of, right, these are my guys and I know I'm going to have to rely on the others at other points in the season, but it's almost like when a manager closes the dressing room door, Mm. it's like, right, you're my guys, you're the guys I'm counting on. And for the next few weeks, we're just going to do things this way and we'll integrate the others later on. But this is what we're going to do now. And, was, um, yeah. and, and I really think that's that's had some value. I really do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was almost like, it's, it's very difficult to say it's a clean slate, but, you know, when he did make the changes that he made for the Burnley game and he brought in Ramsdale and it was like, okay... Right. He's blowing some of the cobwebs away here and he's, you know, uh, finishing games with all six of the new summer signings on the pitch. And like you say, players that he's given contracts or contract extensions to and everything else. I'm really curious to see how it plays out with those other players though. Like, does this create? a healthy competition? Does this um, make them redouble their efforts? You know, what does a Rob Holding, a Pablo Marie think when, um, you know, they know basically that in Premier League terms anyway, as long as they're fit Ben White and Gabriel are going to play? Do they fight hard? Do they make that competitive uh, environment? You know, what does Burn Leno do? All of those things I think are going to be fascinating as the season goes on because he is going to need these players at some point.
0: Yeah, and and again, I think that's really valuable though, because there you sort the wheat from the chaff of your squad players. Because ultimately, a lot of those guys, someone like Lacazette, he's still playing for his next contract. It's not going to be at Arsenal, mm. but he knows that a year on the bench means that lovely fat Bosman contract gets gets a little bit mm. gets like a little bit thinner. Yeah, um, and then like Leno, if like if someone like Leno, for example, and and I don't mean this as a criticism of the guy at all. I like. I love the fact that Ramsdale came in because I'm not invested in Leno anymore because he wants. He he's going to leave, and mm. that's fine. Like I'm, I'm not saying like, therefore I hate him. Yeah, I know Or anything, mean. but I it's know. like he's not our guy anymore. Lacazette's not our guy anymore. So, for me, particularly without Europe, I kind of don't care what those players do because whatever they do, like if Leno fights really hard and tries to get his p- place back, brilliant, absolutely great. That that benefits everyone. If he kind of doesn't and just says, well, I'm going to leave, brilliant, fine, he's out. Like, I really think now we're coming to a stage where it is either you're in or you're out. Mm. And... um you know uh, getting rid of some of those some of those guys i'm not calling leno and lacazette squatters there are other squatters who i won't name and um
2: <laughs> i mean he has got know. rid of he has got <laughs> rid of some some you know some players who people you know liked um yep. some divisive players at the same time he has fairly well um, sculpted this squad to his own liking hasn't he yeah. so it's now like like we were saying he's got to deliver on it now because he's been allowed to like do what he did to Ginduzi or Ozil or whatever people want to think about that you know he was allowed to do that he was given the authority to do that but now it's absolutely got to be backed up with uh, the results
0: yeah, yeah, precisely. And, and there are other players as well, like Elneny. He's got mm. one year left on his contract. And why give him game time now? And and it doesn't, I, I don't think we will. I think it'll be Lokongo. It'll be mm. like, right, this is the guy we've invested in. Go for it. And so that's probably the next phase of this project. I think what we've got is a kind of core of 12 or 13 um, starters. And the rest of it is probably going to be filling out some of those squad roles now mm. because we've got, players on the bench like Lacazette, like Leno, like Kalasanach, like Elneny, who who are who aren't gonna be there much mm. longer. And so filling out the squad, that'll be the next bit. And and that might be a problem. That mm. might you might have guys who are like not all in and everything like that. I think that's a temporary problem. And if you're gonna have that problem at any time, have it the year that you're not in Europe and, you know, hopefully you don't have to worry yeah. as much about them. And you know, with Jack's injury now, Lakonga's got another like Lakonga Brilliant start for him in terms of opportunity because first party was injured now Jacques is injured mm. he's he's got a really good chance to impress, and we've got a really good chance to see what level he's at at the moment yeah um, and and that's 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 all good that is all good as far as I'm concerned. This is stuff that's needed to happen for a long time, and now I just don't think we have as many of those players who are kind of half in half out here only for the contracts yeah yeah uh, and the gym privileges um <laughs> and stuff like that there's a couple of those still around um but i think i think we're just moving to a stage now where it is a bit more you're either in the tent or you're out the tent and I don't think the out of the tent stuff is going to be as divisive as like Ozil or Gendouzi or players like that it's going to be well your contract's up in nine months so I don't really give a fuck whether you're happy or not (laughs) yeah
2: Yeah, it was a bit like uh, what happened with Sylvain Wiltord in the last year of his contract at Arsenal you know Arsene Wenger just said well you're not going to be here next year so you know see you later see you later I'm not going to play you All right, look we better leave it there things uh, obviously positive for Arsenal women begin to look up for the uh, for the men and uh, we'll catch up soon. Tim, thanks a million. My pleasure as always. Thank you to Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto, at Stilberto, but you knew that already. Arsenal women, Arscast coming on Monday as they prepare for a big, big game in the Champions League against Barcelona. You will find the best coverage of that on Arsblog News, which handily is at the easy to remember URL of Arsblog Dawn News, so bookmark that. Right. I am going to leave it there for uh, this week. As ever, thank you very much, as always, for listening, for downloading and all the rest. We will have a Brighton preview podcast over on Patreon later on Friday afternoon. Myself and Lewis Ambrose, as always, looking ahead to our next Premier League encounter. And hopefully this is a game from which we can take all three points, continue to build on what we've done over the last couple of weeks and just sort of reinforce some of the, some of the good things that are happening about us. And I think we owe these guys one, to be honest, at their place. So let's keep fingers crossed for that. Do join us for the Patreon preview, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. For now, though, take it easy, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Now, with news of an extraordinary scientific discovery, I'm joined by the esteemed editor of the Scientific Journal of Science, Professor
3: Godfrey Twachlock. Professor Twachlock, good afternoon. Hello. Professor, please fill us in. Well, I have to say this is completely groundbreaking because it's very rare that you can combine three things like science, sport... And travel. And that's exactly what we've done. First thing we did was we fed enormous amounts of data into a supercomputer. Now, if you're aware of what a computer is, you don't need to be a genius to realize that a supercomputer is even better than an ordinary computer. So, we put all the information into this supercomputer, mountains and mountains and terabytes and gigabytes of data, about one particular football team into the supercomputer. To that, we added location data. Now, location data can be used for nefarious purposes by the likes of Googles and Facebooks and those kind of companies, but we did not use it for nefarious purposes. We tallied the information and all the data with this one particular football team and every single destination that they have ever been to. Well, that does sound fascinating, Professor, but what did you find? Well, it's very simple, really. We found that Tottenham get battered everywhere they go. Tottenham get battered everywhere they go. Everywhere they go. Even when we're on a budget,
1: we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.